and welcome to episode four of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast. With me this afternoon, I have Carol Corliss, who is the registrar for the pre-war register for the Owners Club. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. Nice to speak to you. How long have you been involved with the, the club and with Alphas in general? Well, th- th- my involvement with the club was on a peripheral basis for quite a long time. We used to get invited as a group to the National Alpha Day to bring our vintage cars along. And I carried on doing that for some time. And then someone said, well, you really ought to belong to the section, to the club. So I thought, well, yes, why not? So I joined the club. And then after some years, I was asked if I could act as the catalyst for the pre-war cars. And I said, well, in a limited capacity, yes, because I'm not really an archivist. I've got a good memory and I can remember most of the cars, but I don't have lists and lists of facts and figures because that's not my interest. I'm not an anorak in that fashion at all. Um, and we'll come back to that later on, but it is quite a, it's a quite an anoraki period in, in Alpha's history, isn't it? There's an awful lot of change and complication. Oh, yes. yes, there is. Uh, and we'll go into that in a bit because there's certain things that are happening which really need more close inspection. So that was how you got involved in the club. And I know the club's origins way back in the 60s involved some uh, some friction with the Vintage Sports Car Club, as I, as I remember, um, uh, not, not yes. having much interest in post-war alphas. That's correct. But what was it that got you interested in, in the mark in the first place? Um, it goes way, way back. I was taken to Prescott Hill Climb when I was about 14. I actually wanted to be a Grand Prix driver. I won't say Formula One because that wasn't the term in those days. But uh, I was always crackers about circuit racing. And all I ever wanted to do was to go fast, whether it was on two wheels or four wheels or anything else. And really and truly, I'd got everything in my mind said I wanted to race cars, even though I had no idea where that was going to happen. My earliest recollection of racing cars was going with my father who'd been doing a job for Reg Parnell and uh, looking around the racing cars there. And something must have fired up in me. But the first time I really set eyes on an Alpha, as I could say, was when I was about 14 and I was at Prescott and I saw this car a little way away and something just struck inside me and I thought, I'm going to have one of those one day. I didn't think I would love one of those. I was going to have one. And, and can, you, can you remember what it was? It was a 1750s Agato. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever set eyes on. And I think a lot of people would still agree that it is. <laughs> well, yes, probably. Yes, what, what actually happened? I came away from there with this fixed idea in my head that, yes, one day I would have one of those. The means, I had no idea how, because I was quite penniless and no fixed idea of how I was going to get any money together. Actually, it was my brother who happened upon one and it was stuck in the back of a garage and I I think I was 20, 19 or 20. It wasn't easy to extricate that. A lot of problems about it. But in in the end, I managed to buy it. I paid £25 for it. It did not have a Zagato body. It was a James Young body, but the body was pretty shot. So that was the basis of my alpha. And I acquired that in 1964. Did you immediately become part of the alpha-owning scene? Yeah. Or were you, you kind of uh, on your uh, own? 
Yes, I, I joined the, I already belong to the Vintage Sports Car Club and uh, I, I joined the Alpha section there and they were very helpful. Uh, a couple called uh, Roy and Edna Slater used to be the secretaries then and they were extremely helpful to me. I took the car to bits, but I had no idea how to put it together again. <laughs> I put all the nuts and bolts and everything in different boxes. But I did, I did realize my limitations. So I started buying and selling um, average vintage cars like Austin Chummies to yep. finance together. And I carried on like that until I could afford to get someone to put the rolling chassis back together properly. And how long did that take in the end? Oh, it was seven years before I got it on the road. Just, just into the 70s then, when, by the time it got... Uh... Yes, uh, I think it would be probably 1972 when I got it on the road, okay. or um, 71 or 72. If I look at the, the membership survey that we did at the back end of last year, there's about a third of the, the club's members have 105 series cars from the, the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And, and, and although they're, they're starting to rise in value, nobody today would think you were insane if you used one as your daily driver, irresponsible possibly, but, but not insane. But they're not much older now than pre-war cars were in the 70s that's so. true that's absolutely true and i used to use my alpha a lot if i was going out i would think shall i take the alpha or shall i take the uh, a to b car if it was feasible if i if i was going to be able to park it somewhere sensible i'd take the alpha you know i would use it on an everyday basis and was that fairly typical or were you more dedicated than most no, that was fairly typical. I mean, Peter Hull, who used to be the secretary of the Vintage Sports Car Club, he ran an RL, what was it, about 1924, maybe 26, I can't remember. But he ran that car as an everyday car. That was his only car for some years. It's almost he, unimaginable today. It is. It, it, yes, it is. But there's a different attitude at large now. These cars are investments where they weren't when, when I was getting into it. And you talked earlier on about paying £25 for your James Young-bodied car. I guess around about that time, the 60s and 70s, the price of pre-war cars was about as low as it ever got. I mean, they were they were never cheap to start with. And since the classic car boom of the 1980s, prices have just gone up and up. Yeah, I would say that the turning point was about 1958-59, because they were being scrapped into the mid-50s. They're still scrapping cars. And suddenly... After I'd bought the Alpha, they started going up in value. And, uh, of course, they've never stopped. No. So what kind of people were buying pre-war Alphas in, in the 60s and 70s? Well, uh, I mean, a lot of the people it, when I first started were either students or just qualified at things. I mean, I'd got a couple, two or three of the members were doctors and newly qualified doctors. I mean, one wonderful partnership was... John Lesage, who had some wonderful, wonderful cars. He was a dental student. And his friend, Robin Toon, who kept his car until two or three years ago, he was a medical student. And they used to rent a flat somewhere in North London. And they used to leave their cars out in the square. And it must have been wonderful because I, I know John Lesage had at least one good two, three, and probably more. And they'd be just left out in the street. How much of a challenge was it? maintaining them and in your case <laughs> rebuilding them at that time well it was a big challenge because no one was making new parts and you'd go out i specialized in finding people that had owned the cars in the past and probably got a few spares on the shelf 
So I used to go and find people and they'd probably have uh, spare brake drums and things like that. You know, hardly anyone was getting stuff made because it wasn't feasible. It wasn't, uh, there was still plenty of spares around. I mean, it used to be a huge stock of spares in Switzerland. There's a scrapyard called Antonazzi's and they had enormous amounts of pre-war alpha spares there. But of course, they all dried up. And as the richer people came into it, they were willing to pay the big prices for remade stuff. So they were paying it. And I guess a lot of the components were, although there will have been some some forged components, a lot of the things were machined in the factory anyway. So recreating one is not quite the challenge that, that creating a plastic moulding for a, a, you know, a sensor housing on a modern car would be. It, it's much easier because it's what I call blacksmith engineering. Uh, modern cars, you've got body pressings, which are not very uh, uh, easy to do. And all the engine stuff is uh, it's pressed out rather than, say not all the engine stuff, but a lot of the stuff is, is made on the basis of uh, being pressed and uh, made in different ways. Whereas the older stuff was handmade. And it was so much easier to reproduce. So I think a lot of the focus on pre-war cars in the press and possibly the popular imagination today is on the sports cars. And that's where your interest started as well. But there were some some more, I'm not sure practical is the right word, certainly some more luxurious cars as well. Did they have the same kind of following in the UK as the sports cars? They had a different following. Very few people were into both. I knew quite a lot of people that collected old Rolls Royces and Bentleys. See, the Bentley following is quite different to the Alpha following. Yeah. A friend of mine, he's had quite a few cars in the past, but he was a young lad and he bought a six and a half litre Bentley with a saloon body on it. It was huge. And it, it was going through, it did about seven miles to the gallon, as far as I remember. And he ran it as an everyday car. And I know we we all piled into it and went down to Silverstone in about 1965 in it. And there were about 20 of us in this car. But it's now sports abandoned plow body. And it's regarded as, uh, you know, being priceless. But as I say, it started out around the Leicester area as a beaten up old saloon. (laughs) And uh, they couldn't get that body off quick enough when, when someone paid a lot of money for it. Pre-war alphas were fairly rare in the 20s and I think got even rarer as the pre-war period went on. I think I was reading something like 2000 built between 34 and 39. But within that, there's a huge amount of variation with coach builders from Pininfarina to to James Young that you talked about earlier. As Mm. as registrar, how do you keep track of them all and and, and recognise what one is? It's very difficult. It's very difficult. There's a lot of paperwork around and I'm I'm working actually in conjunction with three other people right now. We're putting together an archive because there's so many fake cars out there now. And there's an amazing amount of very convincing looking paperwork, which some of it I know full well is not correct, but someone's producing it somewhere. And Uh, and there's a a spectrum too, isn't there, between fake and purely original or or wholly original and an original chassis with the body that wasn't necessarily the body that it came out of the the coach had a a replica Zagato body on I took great care to get everything right on it but it was not a genuine Zagato body 
but that I thought while I was putting another body on, I might as well have the one I wanted. Absolutely. Uh, no, I've got no objection to that whatsoever. I don't even mind people turning up with uh, totally replica cars, providing they say what it is. Yes. Some of the some of the goings on these days, well, it it really does sort of uh, tread over the edge, almost fraudulent. I won't I won't go any further than that. But some of the claims that are made for some of the cars these days are not right. And there's been some well documented examples of that in the specialist press over the last couple of years, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bentleys were the first ones to be questioned seriously. And Alphas are much the same. I don't think anyone has actually had a big court case on Alphas, but sooner or later, it's going to happen. As somebody was saying to me the other day, there are apparently about twice as many Type 35 Bugattis around now as were built. <laughs> yes, correct, correct. And some of them are very convincing. You know, they, they do a good job on them, I must say. But the fact is that when those Alphas were made, they were comparable to Ferraris. They were the Ferrari of their day, and they're in much less numbers too. And they were usually produced as a rolling chassis, and the rolling chassis in those days was about twelve hundred pounds, which you could buy several houses for that amount. And then you had to have the coachwork put on, which would be probably uh, the same amount again. So they were a very expensive car in their time. And what what was the typical buying process back then? Did did you choose a chassis, order the chassis and, and carry on thinking about the bodywork? Or did people go to the coach builder who would then source a chassis? How did it actually work? There was a concessionaire. There used to be a firm called Styles, who were the concessionaires. They were in London and they would order rolling chassis. And you would buy the rolling chassis from them with an option on whatever bodywork was going to go on it, either a James Young or if it was going to be a Zagato, they were usually, they were made in Italy, so they would be imported as a Zagato. But the rolling chassis, there were eight, nine coach builders in this country that would put Alpha chassis uh, to the task. You could choose your own. You could, you could pretty well custom make it to your own specifications, which is the beauty of buying a car like that. Well, when I was doing the Alpha, I, I measured up, so many alpha all the original uh, zagato bodies i could find i measured up so that i got all my dimensions right and none of them were the same <laughs> they were all slightly different but i wanted my doors longer because i've got this injured leg the small doors were a bit of a problem and i managed to get a longer door made and i got it so that it didn't look at all out of place but when i measured other people's doors they all varied and if I'd have gone to Mr. Zagato in 1929 and said, yes, I want one of your bodies, but can you make the door slightly longer? And they would have done that. We talked about the buying process for owners in the, the 20s and 30s. And a lot of those people kept those cars for, for a very long time. How's ownership changed? I mean, these things used to be passed on to children. And, but with the rising <laughs> value and the cost of maintenance, how's that all changed? The ownership's changed totally. In the, in the 60s, right through until the late 70s, we were quite a, a lively bunch that had the Alphas. We all helped each other. We'd all turn up at a vintage meeting. And in those days, there were no what I would call glitzy meetings. There was no Goodwood. There was no cl classic Silverstone. 
and the VSCC was the place. So we'd be in the VSCC paddock. Someone would have a problem and you'd just end up all standing there and discussing the carburation and everything else. We all helped each other. And then we'd go off afterwards to a, a post-event meeting, well, a gathering, maybe in Toast or wherever we were. And the car park would be full of fantastic cars, two nines, two threes, 1750s, you name it. There'd probably be 20 or so vintage alphas in the car park. And they'd all been driven there. And we'd all stand there talking cars. There was no snobbery involved. There was just enthusiasts meeting up. And now, you see, the first thing to start off was the core. Well, it was Christie's in the first place. They sponsored a meeting at Silverstone. And then Coys took it over. And that really was the beginning of the big competitive meetings. So people took their cars to Coys. And we used to have a VSCC exhibit there and gather all our club cars together. And it was a very good meeting, actually. Everyone enjoyed it. And since then, it's changed a lot because a lot of people that pay big bags of cash for their alphas, they won't go to the club meetings these days. They'll take it to the invitation events like Goodwood or Pebble Beach, maybe. But they really, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them don't want to bother with the smaller meetings. So we've lost all those cars. And has the camaraderie gone as well? Yeah, I think it has. I think it has. I read an article John Dooley wrote a little while ago, and, and I know the cars involved are different and the values are different, but he was talking about running a Julietta at the Goodwood Revival and having some problems and, and everybody in the paddock kind of pulling round to make sure that they could get out on the track. Has that kind of thing disappeared from the pre-war scene? It has with the owners. I would say that quite a lot of the people that... Uh, don't forget, these people don't run their own cars. They'll, they'll probably keep them with one of the specialists and the car will be taken down there and they'll just get in it and drive it. But uh, not all of them, but a lot of them will now. They'll not stand around talking about the car's problems. They'll just sort of say to the mechanic, not running properly, it's misfiring, get it sorted, will you, or whatever, or can you have a look at it? And they will probably talk to the other mechanics around. They're quite friendly towards each other, most of them are. And they will have those conversations that the owners would have had a few years ago. Uh, I mean, if I, if I had a problem, and I know on one occasion, I, <laughs> my car had been on show at Stoneley, and it was uh, used for the dinner and dance, uh, no, dinner and prize giving on the Saturday night. And it was on the podium. And... Um, when I went to collect it, I couldn't get it to start properly, and I thought, what's going on here? And the advanced retard lever seemed to be okay. What I didn't realise, someone had been messing with it and turned it round 360 degrees. So it was on total retard, with the result that it blew back, burst into flames. And there was no one anywhere near. I'd got nothing. And all I'd got was grass around, and, and I just had to whip my sweater off and bung it into the carburetor. Now, these days, I knew, I knew better later on. I, I, I know that if you accelerate hard, it will pull the flames in. But I didn't realise at the time that it had been messed about with. But that's the sort of thing that happens when you're using vintage cars. And if I had that kind of problem, I, I used to get problems on the road, naturally. You'd get into the paddock and you'd say to your chums, I'm having... A problem with the brakes. I can't do such and such, or it won't do so and so. 
and they'd come round and we'd have a brains trust and a quick forum and somebody would be tinkering around on the front of the car or something and they'd say oh that's the problem look here we are we've got it and can you remember the point where it all started to change I, I was looking after the VSCC exhibit at um, the COIS meeting and we got the marquee up and everything. And it was Thursday morning and cars had started arriving. And we'd got some really good cars on our stand, you know, Bugatti Type 35Bs and uh, blower Bentleys and that sort of stuff and a couple of Alphas. And uh, this car and a trailer pulled up and the, the MG Car Club was across from us. This girl hops out and the poor chap, I think if, if anybody was henpecked, it was this fellow. And uh, she stood there and she was directing him to line the trailer up. And he got out and he fetched a lawnmower out and he mowed the, the grass and he swept it up. And she just stood there the whole time. And then he put a polythene sheet down and he rolled the car off. And she was directing him while he was cleaning the wheels, which didn't look dirty anyway with a small paintbrush and some of our alpha blokes who were in their usual state of oily um, disarray were standing there watching and they were having a good laugh about it and she turned around and she said oh she said you obviously don't understand old cars well one of the people there had got a really lovely collection of cars and his cars hadn't arrived yet but they were coming and the other chap had just turned up in his Bentley and he said, no, nah, you're right, you're right, girl, we don't, do we? And uh, she carried on. And I mean, it was an MGB. <coughs> which you, you either like MGBs or you don't. But uh, she obviously thought she'd got something like the crown jewels there. And her poor husband had to do all the donkey work. But we had a very good laugh about it. And a bit later on, we saw him standing on the fencing, watching some of the cars being unloaded, which some of the fancier ones were turning up by that time. And I thought, well, I hope you feel rather foolish, madam. <laughs> but that just puts things into perspective, doesn't it? It does. You know, we've seen it so many times. I mean, another case was Dennis Richardson when he had that lovely Corsa Spider 2-3. And we went, to, we went on the Norwich Union. I'd got my Alpha there. He'd got that. And there was another Alpha. And we were, we were offered hotel accommodation. They wanted us at the Lord Mayor's Parade. So they offered us hotel accommodation and we were to use this multi-storey car park, which they'd put guards on, security guards. So we turned up and Dennis parked his car up, lovely sort of rawr, 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 and parked it up. And uh, we were just getting out of the cars and this young lad turned up and uh, he'd got a Hilma Minx drop head. Yep. We, uh, you know, any car like that is worth a few bob these days, but that was basically, that was in the late 80s. And uh, he sort of stopped where the security guard was. And he said, uh, I, hope, I hope you're going to keep a good eye on these cars because they're worth quite a lot of money, you know. He said, uh, and I value my car. And the security guard said, well, yes. He said, there'll be somebody here all night. He said, well, I should hope so. He said, because I'm not leaving it if it's not going to be safe. And Dennis, <laughs> sort of, Dennis was a very, very typical Lincolnshire farmer. And he, he shouts across, don't worry, lad. He said, dustbin men don't come round while Monday. <laughs> I know it's a bit cruel, but <laughs> it couldn't help it. It was so pompous, the little devil was. Harsh <laughs> but fair, I think, is the... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's Dennis's car, which he sold not too long after that for about uh, two, two million plus, <laughs> which it would fetch a lot more these days. But uh, 
in the it's all relative you see yeah you can look back and think oh god i fancy selling that for that amount of money but uh it, it was relative you, you could do a lot more with that money at that time obviously nobody's doing much of anything at the moment um <laughs> but no. when when things start to return to normal if people want to see pre-war cars in action where should they go difficult because you get less and less at the vintage meetings like i've said the ownership's changed you get the odd um you've got people like alex pilkington who's a great enthusiast she brings her 1750 to most of the vintage meetings david buxton he brings his but sometimes at some of the meetings there's no vintage alphas at all and I, I don't particularly enjoy the glitzy meetings because you don't have that atmosphere of the enjoyment of the cars. It's a spectacle rather than an experience. You know, I, I mean, I sat at Goodwood. I, I haven't been to Goodwood now for six years. The last time I went, I decided I wouldn't go again. I did have a press pass for several years. And so I used to get my three-day ticket. And I went down and I was getting less and less enamoured with it. and. I, I mooched around, I did two or three interviews, I was doing it for an Australian mag, and uh, I, th I took the photos I wanted, I should have had a photographer with me and they couldn't make it, so I did my own. And I just sat down, I sat at one of the coffee places, and uh, someone came by that I knew, and, he, and, and well, before that, these other two guys came along, and one of them said, is anyone sitting here? And I said, no, you're welcome. And they sat down, and they were discussing their engines. They were Porsche blokes. Oh, I've just spent 70 grand having my top end sorted out. And I thought, you silly beggar. <laughs> Somebody thought you coming. The other one said, oh, yes, well, he said, mine's due for a complete rebuild next year. He said, I'll probably find I've, I've got to shell out something in that figure, probably a bit more, and blah, 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 blah. And they were trying to outdo each other. And I just sat there. I didn't say anything. I thought, oh, dear, this is what it's come to here. And at that moment a friend of mine came by and saw me and said oh carol how are you doing oh, have you got your alpha here and i said no i said i don't like bringing it around the m25 because i've been stuck on the dartford bridge too many times and it wasn't a happy situation being stuck on there not in an alpha he said oh pity he said i would i'd have liked to have got some photos of it and i said well you know just give me a yell and i'll tell you when i'm going out next or come by you know call by and this conversation went on and we were just chatting about what we'd been doing and i said i'd been on this particular event and anyway he went and this these blokes had obviously been sitting there listening in and uh, one of them said oh he says, have you got an alfa romeo and i said yes and they said oh what sort and i said well it's a blown 1750 oh oh he said, they're real top end, aren't they? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, I've had it many years and I love the car. Well, did you inherit it or something? And I said, no, I didn't. I bought it. And he said, oh, he said, it must have cost you an arm and a leg. And I said, actually, it cost me £25. I said, and I do most of the work on it myself. And my nephew is a brilliant engine builder. So he does what I can't. I said, no, it doesn't cost me a lot of money. I've never been into it for a lot of money. And I would consider myself well and truly ripped off if I got charged mega bucks for doing work on it. And uh, he said, oh, I said, it, it, you obviously uh, do different things to what we do. And I said, well, I do everything I want to do with the car. I take it uh, on events. I drive hundreds of miles in it. 
oh, you don't take it on a trailer then? I said, no, I don't. I said, my car's only ever been trailered when it's not running, when I've been taking it to have the body work done and things like that. Oh, and I thought, we're talking a different world here. They do not understand vintage motoring as it was. Obviously not. Maybe the and moral of the story is if you want to spend a lot of money, buy a reliable German car. <laughs> yes, quite right. But I came away from there and the more I saw, the more I disliked it. And I thought, I don't belong here. It's not my scene anymore. And on the Friday afternoon, I saw some people I knew. I gave them my tickets and I drove home. And that was it. I've never particularly wanted to go to Goodwood again. And that's, that's it for me. I, it's not my scene at all now. Maybe I've outlived it, I don't know. But that's not my idea of a good vintage meeting. I guess the plus side of the high valuations is that you know, any car that's out there now is going to be saved. Uh, you know, pe people are yeah, to... that, that's quite true. And looking at, it, looking at it from my point of view, I was never rich. And a lot of times I had to choose whether I could spend on my car or whether I was going to uh, buy some decent clothing, etc. And the car always won. So when I did eventually sell the car, and it wasn't because I just wanted to take the money, I knew it was going to be a good amount of money, but I was driving up from Italy and I was quite tired and it was very hot weather. And I suddenly, I walked out of the hotel somewhere in Bavaria and I just thought, oh, got another long drive in this. And I thought, that's it. I've done everything I wanted to do with this car. I don't think I need it anymore. And it was, a, uh, I always knew that I would know when it was time to sell it. And that was the time. And we got into the car and I had my nephew with me and I said, I don't, I don't need the car anymore. I'm going to sell it. And I know you don't particularly want it. So I said, it's, I'm going to sell it when I get back. And it ran like a dream all the way back from Italy. We went over the Alps and everywhere else. And I thought, it can only go down from here because if I have an engine blow up, it's going to cost me an arm and a leg again. I'd never blown the engine up. I, I, I broke a, a little end once, but I was lucky. I, it didn't do much damage. But I'd had the engine rebuilt, and I knew I couldn't afford another big rebuild. And I thought, I really have to let this go while it's in tip-top shape. So that was another reason, you see. We've talked about how ownership has changed. Um, yes. If there's somebody out there listening who's, you know, maybe had a, a background in more modern alphas but thinks that they would they would like to own a pre-war car is there such a thing as a an affordable pre-war car and, and where should people start to look if they want to to get into that uh, difficult um i mean at the bottom end of the valuations on the pre-war you have the single cam 1500 which if you want an average road car which top speed would be about 60 miles an hour, then that would be relatively affordable. And what then do we mean by relatively affordable? Um, well, difficult to put a price on one at the moment. I would say that you'd probably be looking at about 80,000, one needing work. But the problem is, you see, that people have been buying those and converting them into twin count cars, et cetera, et cetera. So there's not that many left. There are one or two about. I happened upon one a couple of years ago that the chap's now working on, and that had been left in a you know an unrestored state. 
And that's not a, a small amount of money, but it, it's the same kind of money as a, as a well-specified Julia Quarifolio or a, a Stelvio. So it's not, yeah. it's not insane money. Well, I, it amuses me when people say, oh, I couldn't possibly afford a vintage Alpha. Well, like I've said, I've never been rich. I can't say I'm poor these days, but uh, I've never been rich. And that car really was my main outlay in life for yeah. many, many years. So when people said, when, there was, when, when they'd got something like a Porsche sitting outside my house and they were admiring the car, oh, I couldn't possibly afford one of these. I thought, well, you're probably in a better position to afford one than I ever was. It's a matter of priorities, really. And if it's, if it's not too painful a question, what do you think your car would be worth now? Difficult to say. They've been fluctuating lately. I mean, there was one up for sale not long ago and it didn't fetch anything like I thought it might. And that did have a genuine body on it. So I would say probably about 650. I mean, a, a, a real out-and-out -out genuine Zagato-bodied blown 1750 can go anything up to about 1 million point four if it's a really good one so the the real advice if you want to buy a pre-war alpha is to get a time machine and buy one in the 60s <laughs> that's the only answer <laughs> I, I certainly couldn't buy another one but i wouldn't want another one now i mean i've been very very fortunate i've seen the best years with that car i've known the best people they were fantastic the people i knew in those years and I'm not saying there aren't some fantastic people about now, because there are. But on mass, as a group, we had some brilliant, brilliant times. And I don't think that would happen again, because they're too concerned about keeping the car wrapped in cotton wool, which we didn't. You know, I would go out in blizzards, et cetera, et cetera, doing trials and things in the car. And you'd come back and hose it down and put it back in the garage. I suspect, I, I, you, you may know differently, but I suspect there are probably as many, if not more, pre-war alphas in the UK now than there were then, but they're, they're in air-conditioned garages or, or you know, locked away rather than I out and about it, being used. Yeah, I find it difficult to track them now because uh, it, some, of, some of the transactions are quite secretive. You don't hear where the cars have gone to and you can't find out, which is rather sad. So I'm, I'm losing track of some of the cars, which is one reason we're working on these archives of the 1750s. There's, there's excellent tracking of two threes because Simon Moore's uh, research has been fantastic. His books really track every two, three there is, apart from a few totally lost ones. But the 1750s, they've never been properly tracked like that. And the people I'm working with, who are all in different places in the world uh, we've got between us quite a lot of information and i think it's important that that gets catalogued because it's yeah. be lot but people like me I, i'm re relying on my memory and i'll see a car that i've known in the 60s and it, t it turns up totally misrepresented and you think just a minute i knew that car and it certainly wasn't what they're making it out to be is is there a plan to publish that or is that just a, a Yes, it will, it will It'll be available. We're not going to slag cars off on it. What we shall do is put together all the correct cars that we know and say this chassis number was originally a what you call it, whatever it was. We're not going to go on conjecture. We're going to go on hard facts. 
And, and is, is there a timeline for getting it finished or is no, it a, we're, we're, an ongoing we're, project? We're already starting to put it together, but I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, I'm working with a guy in France, a guy in New Zealand, uh, Johnny Lorani's grandson who's in Italy. He's got a lot of archive stuff and one other person. There is information out there, but it's not always being disclosed. That's the problem. And we want to disclose it. Well, let us know when it's done and, and maybe we'll yep. get you back on the podcast and talk about the publication of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. It's been You're fantastic. welcome. You're welcome. Well, I hope you all enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed recording it. In next week's episode, we're going to take our first foray outside the club, although we're not going that far. I'm going to be talking to Andy Robinson, who's the championship coordinator for the 750 MC Alfa Romeo Championship. That will be available from 1.30 next Sunday from all your usual podcasting sources. But until then, stay safe.